Today I'm talking with Dr. Kevin Folta, a science communicator, farmer, researcher, and professor at the University of Florida about controversy in scientific communication, genetically modified organisms, patenting living things, and more. We're really good at innovating at universities and all of our companies, great at innovation, but getting that innovation to the field has been a problem. And you see the pushback against things like a COVID vaccine. I mean, that was amazing development that we could make and you get pushback. How do we stop that? How do we get technology to people who need it sooner? And, and that means better communication about what it is and what it isn't. And so that's really how I got started. And it really was a baptism by fire. I mean, everything I've learned has been boots on the ground rather than reading thick books on science communication. Right. And so what common mistakes have you heard or seen when, when, you know, you're doing science communication. Yeah. The funniest thing for me as a scientist is uh, realizing that I can't convince anybody of anything just by giving them facts and facts don't matter. Um, it sounds silly because in science, our currency is facts, right? I mean, that's what we, that's right. what we have, but uh, really what it's about is do people trust what you're saying? Mm. And if they trust you, they believe whatever that is that you're saying. And, and that's not meant in a, to say that this is a way to deceive people, but this is a way to effectively disseminate science is to first earn their trust. And once you have their trust, they're very likely to believe what you're talking about. So learning who to trust is the most important part of science communication today. So you would say that, you know, it's better to, I don't know if it's some sort of psychological trick that you're doing to gain people's trust. I don't think so, but it's better to do that if you're actually trying to disseminate the truth rather than to allow other people to kind of control the narrative who don't so much have, I guess, the scientific truth in mind? Oh, you got it. So someone with an agenda, or if you look across politics, you have people with agendas that are trying to control the narrative, yet they don't necessarily have the facts in the right place, or maybe they are being outright deceptive. And then we as scientists come in and say, well, that's not the case. Here are the really real facts. As I said before, facts don't matter. It's about who you trust. And you can see it, whether you're talking about COVID-19, whether you're talking about politics, any issue in politics, people align with who reinforces their own beliefs. Hmm. You know, the facts are independent. Um, you can, you can, you know, there's, there's people out there who believe the earth is flat, right? I mean, it's because right. there's a website that tells them that it is, but they trust and they don't trust, you know, big NASA and all the rest of those. <laughs> yeah. So this, so this is really where we're at. It, it is about earning trust. And, it, and it's not a trick. It's, it's, it's an equation. And it's ways that people have learned from psychology, how you earn and how you lose trust. And so that's what I go around teaching is how do you build trust? Because once you have trust, um, good information can flow. Do you ever get disheartened? I mean, because there does seem to be, if you look at history, there's a historical trend, a lot of, <laughs> a lot of, of the dissemination of misinformation. And it just kind of has gone like that throughout the ages. I think we like to think that everything started in the modern era uh, in terms of like bad, you know, deceptive practice, but it's really <laughs> been around for a long time in terms of, you know, influencing people's behavior um, to do Absolutely. things that might not be in their best interest. Um, yeah, but, yeah. It, it, it does get, it does get this hard. It really does because it, they can say whatever they want and it doesn't take evidence. I have to play within a very strict rule book of evidence and empirical knowledge. I can't deviate from Right. And if I'm taking a wild guess, I have to say it's a wild guess. Others don't have to play by those rules. And so it makes it very difficult for us to counter ideas 
because we can't make stuff up. In a similar vein, you know, I recently read your Medium post um, on Joe Rogan and ways to help him use his platform for better science communication. So I think I would be remiss if I didn't ask you a few questions about that. Obviously, sure. a month ago when I asked you, that wasn't even in, in my mind. Um, but what role do you think people like Joe Rogan have to play in science communication, you know, non-scientists who have large platforms? Well, this is the point, is that Rogan has a massive following. And he's going to use that massive following to, to communicate something. And he's either going to communicate nonsense like he's fallen into, or he's going to be trained and helped to understand what's good information and what's bad information. Who can you trust and who can you not trust? And you would not believe the blowback I got for writing that article. Hmm. With everyone saying, well, he's a racist and he's a this and he's a this and you shouldn't believe any. Don't ever give him a platform. He's got a platform. Now the question is, do we want him to do our work for us or do you want him to work against us? And as an educator, I don't think there's anybody I can't help train Mm -hmm. or help teach. How do you distill good information from bad information? Can we make Joe Rogan a connoisseur of good information so that when he steps into that octagon of scientific information that he can be on our side? Mm. And I don't think that's a bridge too far. Have you ever thought about going back on Joe Rogan? I would in a heartbeat. Um, I think we tried to organize this at one point, but it was difficult for both of our schedules. And I would be on there in a second. I had a great time with him. I am a good judge of character. I really do believe that he has best intents at heart. He can be rough around the edges. He can make mistakes like the rest of us. I can't condemn anybody for making mistakes. All I can do is be there to help them. And forgive them. And you know, this goes back to ideas that maybe are a little worn out these days. Hmm. In a world of cancel people, I like to counsel people. Hmm. And I think it, we would all be a little bit better if we were a little less quick to get rid of others' ideas or other, you know, we, we can attack ideas, we shouldn't attack people. Hmm. And if we can do that, can we take someone who's powerful, has a huge following like Rogan, and help him help us? And that was my argument. And right. you'd swear I, that I made a comment about that we should be throwing puppies in the wood chippers. I mean, the blowback on that was amazing. You seem to get a, a lot of blowback on just about anything you post at this <laughs> point. You'll get like you'll get like one comment. It'll be like tangentially related or not related at all. And it'll just kind of be attacking GMO stuff. And that seems to just follow you. Yeah, yeah. It's But that's... but. In a way, it's kind of a barometer that I'm still being effective and still changing someone's mind. Mm. And it's more that I'm putting out information that someone is threatened by. Right. And the beauty of this, and this is something that we underestimate, this is the power of engagement. I will tell people it's important that you counter bad information. We must step into those conversations about Mm. COVID, about genetic engineering, about agriculture, about whatever. We have to step into those conversations. And people will say, well, I don't want to have to deal with some idiot calling me an idiot. (laughs) But they're not your target audience. Your target audience are all the people who are dialed in and are watching. Right. The Internet is a spectator sport. And if we can use uh, someone who's difficult or someone who's bitter or someone who's awful as our foil so that we can show our good side and show our grace, even in front of somebody who's absolutely horrible. Now we become the ones who are trusted. And our messages resonate. So I love to engage those things. 
So as somebody who's kind of faced this different type of controversy, you know, whereas Joe Rogan has faced controversy for misinformation, you face controversy for kind of pushing, you know, mainstream scientific information, uh, which I'm sure is, is interesting. So how do you recommend, I guess, any specific tips for dealing with that sort of controversy? And I mean, obviously, you know, I've seen you respond to so many people. I mean, it, I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of in awe of how you do that. <laughs> It's kind of that weird Jedi mind trick, you know, like Mm. these aren't the droids you're looking for. It is earning trust with the real audience. And that's who we forget. Everybody who's watching is watching the one because people don't know who to trust. In a confrontation between a scientist and someone who claims scientific acumen, they don't know who to believe. And so what I like to do is make sure that they know it's me. And Mm. that doesn't come from being smarter and throwing around more statistics. It comes from me saying, here's what's important to me. I want you to get this right. You know, I disagree with what you say because um, uh, training that I have says something else. You know, leaning on my training and my ethics, um, my values. You know, it's really important to me that we get this right because I care about the environment. And so I really want to know more about why you feel the way you do. Um, The three words help me understand. I love that (laughs) Going with someone who makes a completely insane comment and saying, help me understand why you feel the way you do. It forces them to articulate a completely insane point. Right, right. <laughs> so, so these are all kind of like weird. It's weird uh, rhetorical jujitsu. It's using someone's weird mom- momentum against them. Mm. And I, I think it's horribly effective. Okay. So outside of science communication, I think I also wanted to talk to you about you know, why did you specialize and work with plants in particular? Because in the field of biotechnology, obviously, as you know, it spans a lot of applications. And I know specifically with me kind of being in, in a STEM pre-med background for a while, I remember a lot of people interested in biotechnology were specifically interested in, you know, human biotechnology. So why plants? Um, it was basically because I had good uh, mentors through my uh, upbringing. So I, I always liked growing plants and I was always interested in, in gardens and farming and that kind of thing. Uh, new people on farms. And when I was coming up through undergraduate, I got to wash dishes in a plant laboratory and I washed dishes pretty well. I didn't break too many. Mm. So they handed me an experiment and I was hooked. And I showed that I was pretty good at repetitious work with precision that I could come up with innovative ways to double check myself and make sure things were good. And it really kind of gave me more opportunities to do more research. And when you start seeing funny stuff ooze out of the tube that gives you answers, um, when you see patterns emerge in the data that you didn't anticipate that don't support your hypothesis, but support a hypothesis that's much more interesting. That's the kind of stuff that gets you so excited about research. And from there, I was just lucky to move from that plant lab into another plant lab and have opportunities in more labs around plants. And it was just being able to work with the most outstanding mentors who were willing to have me aboard. Hmm. And uh, I've always been very fortunate to have that. So the proverbial meat of what I wanted to talk to you about also was about the, the patenting of life and about the patenting of gene sequences. And many people might not know, so for some background, um, in 1980, I think the Supreme Court decided uh, Diamond v. Chakrabarty, and the decision was that novel modified organisms could be patented. 
Um, so I'll start with a pretty general question, which is why do you think the legal ability to patent modified organisms is important? Because the organism is modified through engineering and art that we are using specific mechanisms to create a new invention. And it's just an invention that's made up of biomolecules rather than gears and pulleys. And that modification, if it is, if it goes by the patentable rules of having novelty and uh, originality, it should be patent protected. Hmm. And the main reason for that is simply that it spurs more innovation. When you reward innovation, it allows for more innovation. Not just in that it's making somebody rich. A lot of times it doesn't. A lot of times it just provides enough money to be able to take the innovation to the next level. And consumers always want innovation. Uh, innovation moves us forward in so many ways. It's important to incentivize through patents. So do you think that there's any merit to opposing the patenting of living things? Because I think that a lot of people take this kind of ethical approach where, you know, all life is precious, they'll say in some instances. They'll say things like, we shouldn't play God, for instance, is the common one. I think we should. <laughs> yeah. I, no, I, I mean yeah. that in, I mean that in a very soft way. In my opinion, we're working as scientists to improve the human condition. And if that means we can manipulate the the fundamental basis of life by the information in, in, in an organism, that allows us to do something very powerful and sometimes change the world, especially in the developing world, fixing food security issues, human medicine like insulin. Um, all of these things should be incentivized so that we can continue to do more of it. Now, the big question on this comes, maybe not should we be patenting it, but what happens after we patent it? Mm -hmm. We should protect people's ideas and people's art, you know, just like we protect art and music and everything else. We should protect that. The right. question is, what happens next? And if you have a protected idea, does that mean that you should be able to sell insulin for $10,000 only to the wealthiest people? That's where we run into a problem. And maybe that's where we have to soften the rule, change the rules a little bit to allow access to patents, to, but by incentivizing the life of the patent. Hmm. We'll extend the patent for longer, and you can profit from it more if you make it less expensive, okay. you know, licensing less expensive. There's ways that are give and take on this, and I'm no expert in the area. I just know that uh, from looking, talking to plant breeders, that if it wasn't for royalties coming back on patented varieties, there would be no breeding program. I mean, I'm sure you've talked to, to many people about this issue at this point, but what is a common reason that you see that people, uh, I guess, bring forth as a, as a reason to not allow the patenting of life? Um, and, and do you find any of them persuasive at all? I haven't heard anything that's too persuasive. I, okay. I, most of it boils around kind of um, not necessarily hard science as much as maybe religious overtones that this is something has some sanctity that we should not violate that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But I don't, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm way out on a limb in, in terms of these kinds of attitudes. Some people do have at lines where they feel the ethical line is a little bit more that there are some things we shouldn't touch. Right. I'm of this, of the very strong feeling that if we can, we should, if it can help somebody, medically, if it can help somebody with food security, if it can have positive benefits for the environment, if it can help commercial enterprises that are necessary, like farming, um, I think that it is our obligation to implement these technologies. I, I feel very strongly about that. Maybe in one instance that, that I think I could see 
why people would have a lingering fear of the sort of genetic modification is especially when it's brought over to, you know, human biotechnology. Um, and so people will look and they'll see, you know, science fiction, you know, they'll also look back at history and they'll see, you know, the ways in which um, the alteration of human genetics has been used as a, as a, not only as a tool, but as a um, kind of a political impetus, uh, you know, improving genetics, I think, I think is the, the claim eugenics. that's controversial. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I was trying to avoid the word, but yeah, that's exactly <laughs> the word in, in the historical context that would be used. Um, but I don't know, as a separate question, I think, um, do you think that there should be any barriers to the genetic modification of humans? If you think that, you know, it doesn't matter so long as it helps people. And then, you know, it gets into kind of this philosophical, you know, landmine zone where you're like, you know, at what yeah. point do I say that this no longer helps people? That's funny because I once answered this question on a panel by saying, um, if, if I had to live in a world surrounded by beautiful and smart people, that's a sacrifice I'm willing to take. <laughs> but, but in reality, just not joking. So I look at this as uh, Victoria Gray. Victoria Gray is a woman who was affected by sickle cell disease. 95,000 Americans affected by this disorder that's extremely painful, that can limit life, predominantly African-American. And she received a genetic modification of her own bone marrow stem cells that allow her to make bone marrow um, that is corrected for that disorder. And she went from living a what would be likely a shorter life, painful life, uh, with disability to completely normal. Mm. And this because of a genetic modification of her own bone marrow. Um, to me, this is, again, one of these things that we must do because it changes her life and it can change the lives of, of, of 95,000 Americans, let alone people all over the world. And it's simple and it's no risk. And we know exactly what we're doing. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is the kind of thing that I would like to see no regulation on. I would like to see this be something we get more aggressive with. Um, the fact that it was done two years ago and that every person isn't treated is a heartbreak to me. It's expensive, but this is a great investment. <laughs> I mean, you know, I think this is what we should be doing. I don't know that we need to be worrying about questions of enhancement. Okay. You know, that's where I kind of draw the line. Therapy, yes, but enhancement, no. Um, we don't, we shouldn't be playing with tinkering with genes to make people taller or faster or smarter. Or, right. You know, you know, whatever you, your enhancement you want. Um, but I think in therapeutic context, I, I think there is no question. This is kind of a point, you know, I had this conversation at, at a philosophy conference like a year ago. And so it's coming back to me, but you know, there's this thing, I guess it was referred to in that context as, you know, negative eugenics, which is the removal of a, of a, of a, you know, negative trait or a problem. And so the problem is, you know, a lot of people at first will say, um, you know, I would like to remove, you know, X problematic trait, you know, like sickle cell anemia, you know, for instance. Um, but then, it gets back to this whole ordeal of value judgments where, you know, which traits are you going to cut it off and say that this is not a, you know, a bad trait. I'm not sure if either of us is qualified to answer that question. Um, um, I am. You are? <laughs> no, no, no. I'm just, <laughs> okay. I'm just kidding. I, I, I think that, you know, I, I think that I, I have some ideas in my head about that because I, I really do think that it really sticks hard to therapy. 
Okay. That if you can reverse a disease that is causing somebody pain or whatever, but you know, then you start getting like a, like a good example would be orthodontia, right? Mm-hmm. If you could like uh, change a gene that would make somebody have better teeth. Well, you could argue that maybe it would uh, help them with the alignment of their TMJ right. or whatever, you know, so that's where it would start to get kind of furry. But I really do have a very strong belief that if we can help correct issues like sickle cell disease or cystic fibrosis or um, uh, even, you know, dwarfism or, or other issues that you could predict in the womb and be able to correct with gene therapy in the womb so that the child would grow perfectly normal. Gosh, I just think that is just miracles to me. Okay. And why we would ever not implement it because of some sort of ethical fear. I, I think that that would be unethical. Kind of related to that, you've seen a, a lot of controversy about GMO foods. Um, but for me personally, I was wondering if you think that the battle is kind of waning or mostly over. Because for my own generation, I don't meet a lot of people. Uh, and I don't meet a lot of people from the generation younger than mine who are anti-GMO or who have like this massive fear of GMOs. I see it mostly with like, you know, older people. It's definitely Um, waning. And I don't know that it, you know, I I think a lot of us who have been on the front line of those discussions, we like to pat ourselves on the back and say, maybe we, you know, had some influence on that. But I really believe the biggest influence was disaster fatigue, that you had people who would say, this is the end of the world, the sky is falling. And this is poison and causing cancer and cause, and none of those claims were true. Right. And even some of the big old websites that used to make these claims are gone and you can only find them through right. a back machine, you know, and, and I like to pull those up and remind people, this is where we were. And this is the stuff that stopped progression of using the technology in the developing world in its tracks and remind them that this, uh, that their resistance to good technology has a body count. Uh, those kinds of things, I think, are very influential these days and maybe will help resolve what's left. But, you know, we, we started this new GMO labeling thing on January 1st, and I don't think anybody even noticed. Kind of ironically enough, outside of agricultural circles, I'm not even sure like that is a public opinion issue anymore. As far as it like I remember it was when I was like in elementary and middle school at this point, like it was way back now. The COVID vaccine was a big part of that, right? Mm. Because here was a use of recombinant DNA technology that really had a profound impact on a public health consequence. And it's produced in vitro. It's produced, you know, this is, this is all DNA and RNA and PCR. I can't tell you as a molecular biologist how happy I am <laughs> to hear, you know, to hear my cab driver talk about <laughs> right. mRNA or the guy who's bagging my groceries start rattling off about PCR. <laughs> mm. It's like, yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, the, and to be an expert in those areas and to hear that, you know, this thing I'm so passionate about is on everybody's lips. I think that's a big part of why the anti-GMO technology um, movement has kind of waned because mm. we've got a populace which has become familiar and comfortable with the idea that DNA is something that we can manipulate in positive ways that can be good for us. And all that, that plus disaster fatigue, um, I think is something very real and helping to move away from the uh, old, you know, warnings of danger. So this is another why question, but I was wondering if you thought there was some particular reason why people were initially so fearful of GMOs. I mean, is it just like the fear of the unknown, some of the controversy that that 
I know you've seen is affiliated with, you know, big agricultural companies. And so do you think that it was missteps by big agricultural companies that made, you know, this other technology that they were involved in kind of have this public stigma? A very good. That's, you know, you make a very good point there, but let me go backwards before I address that big ag part. Nobody got too upset when we made recombinant DNA insulin hmm. or recombinant DNA growth hormone to help people who had long bone growth disorders in the 1980s. This is old stuff now. Um, um, artemisinin and other, other types of, of compounds that could be used as anti-malarials. A lot of these things came through genetic engineering and nobody cared. It's all medical. Hmm. Where people cared is when it was in food. And the messaging that goes towards curing disease is messages of hope. That, and that resonates very much with our, with our executive function, right? right? When you start talking about food, you're talking about the lower rungs on the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And this really stimulates much more of an uh, uh, emotional response. Hmm. You're violating conventions of our, our social uh, gathering around a table, right? You're, you're touching hmm. on societal values. You're touching on uh, issues of and traditions and things like that. You're violating something a little more sacred when you're violating food or changing food. Hmm. People don't like that. That's part of the reason why it was more set up to fail. Then when you had the companies that were making chemicals, that were leading to places like Love Canal and Aniston, right. Georgia, Mississippi, all these gigantic uh, chemical spills and mistakes in Bhopal, India, that killed so many people with Union Carbide's uh, disaster. People were very skeptical of, are the Monsanto's, Dow's, Union Carbide's, Uniroyal's, are they really looking out for you? And as it turns out, um, these companies did have substantial evidence of, of not necessarily being the best corporate citizens. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's putting it lightly. <laughs> so then when they want to shift from, you know what, we're going to give up on this chemical stuff. We're going to start making food. <laughs> we're actually making, you know, seeds that will ultimately produce mm -hmm. the ingredients in your food, yeah. right? Everybody was appropriately skeptical. I think I was back then too, but I, I was much more aware of what these companies really were and what they weren't. And when they divested from their chemical interests and became pure seed players, right. um, th that made a lot of sense to me. I think to the average person, this is why that happened. And this happened in the 1990s, right? The, mm -hmm. the, the emergence of the first genetically engineered crops. And at the same time, the internet was really catching up. And so here you had the internet growing in its infancy, genetic engineering of crop plants in its infancy. The folks who were against it quick to exploit the internet against it. The folks who were generating the technology said, people don't care. They trust us. We'll be just fine. And these companies that had these rather nasty reputations from chemistry days were rightfully maligned by many people who said, we don't trust what they're giving us. And then they failed to communicate and earn trust. So here's, you see the problem. You had people who were ready to take away the trust that they had. They didn't have much to begin with. Now they're putting together products that people are bringing into their homes and feeding to their families. Right. This is why it was a perfect setup for that. We've talked a lot about why, you know, GMO technology, biotechnology in different forms kind of has had controversy around it. But I was wondering why GMOs are important. And I know it's such a general, uh, you know, kind of question, but and actually, before we even get to that, I, I actually did want to ask a question because, you know, you're much more deeply um, 
read in terms of the literature on GMOs. I was wondering if there's ever been like even like a single case of any like adverse event being tied to a GMO in any way. Oh yeah, absolutely. There are. There are environmental consequences of using genetic engineering directly and indirectly. That when you use an herbicide over and over again, you start to develop herbicide resistance in the weeds in that Mm -hmm. area. And we've seen since the widespread use of glyphosate in uh, genetically engineered crops, the emergence of probably 30 to 40 different weed species that are now resistant that previously weren't, which means now you've got to escalate and add another chemistry to be able to control them. Um, When you start seeing resistance of insects to the insect controls, that's another problem. Um, Those are the big environmental issues. The indirect issues are when you make it very easy to grow plants because you have such, you have good weed control when you do, it incentivizes farmers to expand their land and take away fence lines, which means you take away the natural forages that are there for bees and butterflies and natural ecology. You um, take away and expand into more prairie space. It allowed the rapid expansion of farmland. So is that negative? I guess it is. And it is a genetic, is a consequence of good technology that allowed it to expand. Mm. In terms of human health, there has never been one reputable uh, case where this worked negatively, human or animal health. Um, The technologies are all very sound. The only time that there ever was a hint of something that was potentially negative, um, it was with the Brazil nut uh, protein, high methionine protein, which was uh, which was bred into corn or soy, and it turns out this is a very potent allergen. Mm. And so this was um, this line of of work was ended very early in its development. Okay, along those same lines. I was wondering what role that GMOs have to play in sustainable agriculture. Um, And on top of that, what advancements you've seen in sustainability using GMO crops since, you know, you said that that is kind of the main drawback that you've seen from. Well, there's two big, two, two ways to look at this. And if you look at big agronomic crops, so your corn, your soy, your sugar beets, um, cotton, canola, these are huge, massive acreage crops that, because you had good herbicides and insect protection, it allowed you to use less fuel, less labor. Um, You use a lower toxicity herbicide in glyphosate compared to other things that were used previously. It allowed farmers to uh, um, be able to confront insect pressures with an insecticide package that the plant protected itself. Mm -hmm. You didn't have to have aerial sprays of broad spectrum insects that would Uh, remove beneficials from the field. The genetic engineering trait only affects the ones that chew on the plant. So it allowed you to have better ecology in your field and produce your crop. It just was a cost savings. And that was the major reason that that they caught on. The second tier of plants are the things like the Hawaiian papaya, where here was a case with an industry going under because of a viral disease that the, the, the genetic technology was able to help out this niche crop mm-hmm. and the um, non-browning potatoes, the non-browning apples, the things that really aren't even available very much yet. Those are still on the horizon for widespread distribution. Again, really help the production that we don't have food going to waste. We don't have 
uh, calls where 25% of potatoes were given to cattle because they had brown spots that Americans wouldn't tolerate. Uh, it allows for these, these foods to now make it into the food chain, which allows farmers to make more money and potentially consumers to have better prices. Mm. So those are the major effects of the current suite of genetic engineered crops. How much do you think that you know plant disease problems could be avoided if you used traditional plant breeding instead of you know we do a lot of propagation by cloning in the industry or by or by you know cutting. So how much do you think just using regular genetic clones? And I and I'm sure this happens also with um, with GMOs to some extent. Well, there's no real genetic engineering for disease other than the viral diseases, um, which is great. But um, there are a lot, there's been a lot of genetic engineering done that demonstrates it can work against things like bacterial wilts. Um, the genes from peppers that give peppers the resistance to bacteria, wilt, uh, xanthomonas, um, have been engineered into bananas. And it works great. And it would be awesome for food security if it were to, to, to be implemented. But in general, uh, breeding is a great way to enhance disease resistance, but you can't breed a green pepper with a banana. And so the genetic engineering approach allows us to use faster tools. You know, breeding can take five, 10, a hundred years, depending right. on what you're trying to breed, whether it's, uh, you know, whether it's, whether it's a rabbitopsis or an mm -hmm. oak tree. In, in the case of, uh, say, green pepper to banana, you can install that gene in five years. Mm and make many plants that can benefit farmers. And that trait also has not been disseminated. It exists. You know, you have bacterial wilt resistant bananas that could change life for African farmers in the lakes regions of Kenya and Uganda. But um, it's locked behind a eight foot chain link fence with barbed wire on the top and a guy with mm. a gun. Um, and I, I stood in that field and I was so sad because you're at a solution here for the people of this very poor area and they can't have it. Mm. So you would say that, you know, we talk a lot um, specifically in agriculture about kind of the growing process, but how much do you think, you know, sociocultural issues have to play? I mean, obviously from the controversy, they have a significant role to play in the dissemination of technology. Um, but how much do you think that's something agriculture and, uh, you know, horticultural specialists should be paying more attention to? Or do you think that, you know, this is a, more of a deal for politics and... and well, I know. think it allows us to respect social and cultural norms that are that different societies have. The people that I get upset with are the people who say, well, if they don't have enough vitamin A, they can just eat kale and Brussels sprouts. Mm. And it's like, yeah, but, but I, most of us don't like that stuff. Why are we going to drop that on... <laughs> Why are we going to drop that on uh, on other cultures and say, here's something that the wealthy people in the West eat, so you should enjoy it too? I think what we really, what it gives us the opportunity to do is, especially with gene editing, these new technologies that go by CRISPR, yeah. they call it CRISPR-Cas9, whatever. These new technologies allow us to do is to take a certain staple crop of a given area of the world that they like, their rice, mm. the stuff they know how to grow, and make the genetic tweak or two that make that rice better resistant to disease or maybe make more of a missing nutrient. This is why I think the technology allows us to be better stewards of other people's cultures, allows us to respect those barriers and allow people to eat what they've traditionally enjoyed. Mm. I think it's a good thing. 
So I work more, at least at present, I work more on, you know, the hydroponic environmental side of growing crops. So how much of, I guess, the future of agriculture, specifically in the U.S., because I know in Europe they do a lot of indoor growing, do you see moving to that rather than, you know, kind of continuing this evolutionary arms race between disease and, you know, insects that are outside rather than just isolating crops and being able to not even have to worry about pesticides, pests? I can look in my crystal ball and tell you very clearly that it will be both. Mm -hmm. That uh, indoor garden, indoor farming, vertical farming, um, urban farming, all this stuff will be, uh, will happen and it will happen. It's going to scale up. And as we bring in more robotics and more sensors and more technology to make this happen in an automated way and take people out of the equation, be able to grow plants in sterile environments under specific lighting regimens to make products that have higher nutrition. This is all science fact that is coming, that was science fiction a few mm. years ago. So it's not going to feed the planet, but it will be in addition to that will give consumers more choice and maybe better prices year round and good access to better food, especially in the cities. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really exciting. I think being able to uh, grow lettuces off season, you know, in, in right. Florida, we grow, we grow lettuce during a very specific season in the winter, being able to do it in the summer in turn inside. Um, this is a really big deal. I think something that um, will be very exciting going forward. I guess the last question I have, and you and you kind of touched on the the ethos, but is there any real benefit? You know, this is a question a lot of people ask, especially when they go into grocery stores because they see kind of this uh, delineation between organic and non-organic food. Is there any real reason to you know prefer organic food other than people people have the idea that it uses less pesticides, but it's really different types of pesticides and that sort of thing. To me, it's kind of a heartbreaking argument because I know a lot of organic farmers and they work really hard to produce what they produce. Mm -hmm. And it's harder for them because it takes more labor, it takes more time. They don't have at their fingertips the inputs that we have as a conventional farm. I speak of we, meaning me and my wife, who my wife is a full-time farmer. Mm. And we can use organic inputs, you know, certified organic inputs, which work just fine. Or in some cases, we got to go a little bit heavier with a specific pest and use something else but we have that at our fingertips where they don't. So they may lose the crop. And so the organic farmers have to work a lot harder to get the same product that really is equivalent in terms of its nutrition and in terms of its, um, in terms of its nutrition. They're substantially equivalent. The problem is, that well, I guess the benefit is, is that it comes with a halo, <laughs> that people believe that it's better. Um, they've been told that it's better. And even though it's not better, who am I to burst the, this is where I get into a funny ethical spot because I want the farmer to make money. Hmm. And so if the farmer, why should I tell the consumer, you know, if, if you want that, don't buy it because you're being fooled. I'd never go there. I say, if, if that's something that, that you find value in use of um, naturally occurring chemistry and uh, supporting a small farmer or supporting an organic farm, which right now organic farms can be massive hmm. owned by Pepsi. You know, so, <laughs> Organic doesn't mean what it used to. But um, to me, paying a premium for something, if you find value in it, great. As long as there's a farmer in there getting a benefit, I got no, no argument hmm. against it. So kind of in an artistic way, it's, you know, you're fine with it if it allows growers to grow the way that they want to grow. That's a lot of times I said grow, but... <laughs> 
No, you're right. You're exactly right. Um, you know, I, I really respect the hell out of organic farmers because they do what my wife does, but do it with a whole lot less tools. Mm. And I see how much, how hard my wife has to work to be a conventional farmer, um, to see what people put on the table at the farmer's market when they're growing it using, you know, a 10th of the tools. It's really impressive. And if they're going to pay a little, charge a little more for that, I got no problem with it because if there's somebody willing to pay it, the, the consumer is willing to pay. No one is putting a gun to this consumer's mm. head and say, you know, buy these $8 carrots. They're going up there and saying, I have uh, the means to do it and I want to support these people. I like their ethics. I like the fact that they're, uh, that I feel they're better stewards of their land. Um, whether or not that's true doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. But if that's based on values and perception and that's what they want to pay for, I, I think that's reasonable. Do you have any problem, I guess, this, it isn't a problem obviously right now, but do you have any problem with kind of the increased land use required typically to, to produce an equivalent amount of crop on an organic? I think that would be one environmental impact. Yeah, I think, and that's a really important one. And, you know, there's a lot of other ones too. I think in, in California was a great example of an impact where they used to outlaw short hoes. Mm. So teams of, uh, teams of migrant workers who would weed the fields would use a little tiny hoe that you could use really fast in between the plants. And these people would work all day in the horrible, horrible sun and uh, hunched over. And it was grueling, backbreaking, literally backbreaking work. And uh, California outlawed that. Mm -hmm. And a few years later, it got to the point where organic growers were saying, well, we really need that labor and we need them to use short hose. What can you do for us? And so they exempted it for organic growers. Mm. So, you know, we find this unethical unless it's for them. Right. You know, that seemed kind of weird. But, you know, and I don't like a lot of the hocus pocus. I'm not a big fan of, and I know biodynamic growers who I, I love as people, but I don't like the idea of some of the things they espouse having reasonable effects on agriculture, which can have zero effect on agriculture. Hmm. They, they, there's no plausible way they possibly can work. It definitely goes in the pseudoscience hopper and that kind of bothers me as a scientist. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, thank you so much for talking with me. It was great. I'm out of questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm out of answers too. So it worked just right. right but I really appreciate you yeah, having no me on and uh, appreciate the conversation. They're really good questions. And if you want to do it again someday, let's do it. Thanks for listening. With any questions or comments, feel free to email industryplant at industryplant.co. See you in another two weeks.